quick. Good evening. My name's Carl. I'm an alcoholic. That came a lot quicker than I thought. I was waiting for the traditions and a ten-minute talk, and a... now I'm here. <clears throat> I would uh, like to thank Stan and the committee for uh, giving me the privilege of uh, uh, being here tonight. It's always a privilege to be at any function of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, as you can see, I'm not Ray V. from Sandia, Texas, as your program says. I'm not even sure why I, I am here, but uh, I'm glad to be here. I'm, I'm fairly used to not knowing why I am somewhere. Half my life was spent not knowing why I am somewhere, but being okay being there anyway. Anyway, I'm going to rifle right into this. I didn't start drinking until I was 11. I, uh, it's kind of late these days, actually. I don't know about you guys, but I, I'm... At, Sometimes when I'm at meetings, I see some guy 12 years old taking a year cake, and he's got one hell of a story going on already. And it's like, wow! <laughs> but I didn't know this until I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, but I believe uh, that I was an alcoholic right from the gate once I started drinking. Because of what happened to me over the next 12 hours after taking my first drink. What happened was, was that uh, my parents were out of town for the weekend, I stole a bottle of wine from my father, I locked myself in his study, and I proceeded to drink. And halfway through that first bottle of wine, I got this unbelievable feeling. I don't even need to describe it to you guys. You guys know what feeling I'm talking about, but, man, it was, it was better than anything I'd ever felt. It was just, oh. I remember taking this big, deep breath, just, now, I didn't know I'd been short of breath for the first 11 years of my life. I didn't know that, but man, I was breathing easier now. And that's the last thing that I remember of that night was that feeling. The next thing that I remember is I came to my bedroom the next day, and as, I, uh, as my eyes opened up slowly, I realized I had puked all over the bedroom. I mean, all over the walls, all over the floors, in the pillowcase. It was in my underwear. I mean, everywhere. And I knew I was going to have to puke again, and I made it into the bathroom, and I... I realized I puked all over the bathroom floor, and I slipped on the bathroom floor. I hit my head on the toilet bowl going down. And as I crawled back up to get my head back in the toilet bowl, I felt that wonderful, wonderful feeling that I would feel many times later in my life. And that is how nice and cold that porcelain feels on the side of your face. Just <clears throat> just love that feeling. And I got my head back in that toilet bowl, and I started to heave. And I'd made it to that stage of dry heaves, you know, where, <gasps> where nothing's coming out, and you're still involuntarily jerking. And I was doing that, and uh, all of a sudden my mind kicked in. And this is what my mind said to me in between dry heaves. It said, this is all right. We're going to do this again. <laughs> so right there, within 12 hours of taking my first drink, everything that makes me alcoholic had happened. Halfway through that first bottle of wine, I got an abnormal, or a big book of Alcoholics Anonymous calls it an allergic reaction to alcohol. This strange thing called the phenomenon of craving kicked in, and I lost control over the amount that I drank. I did not mean to drink two bottles of wine at 11 years old. I was like four foot four, and two bottles of wine in me. I did not mean to. I only meant to experiment. But it seems to me that uh, the best way I can describe this phenomenon of craving in my life is that I see, whenever I drink booze, I seem to get thirstier the more I drink. It's just bizarre. Um, it doesn't happen with anything but booze. In fact, uh, I have a glass of water here that I'll probably finish maybe half of it, maybe all of it in the next hour or so that I'm talking with you. But I can promise you, after this meeting, I am not going to go get a case of water to get me through the rest of the night. I'm not going to do that. I can absolutely guarantee and promise you that I will not be doing that. But if that's all there was that... If that's the only thing that made me alcoholic is what happened to me when I did drink, that I lose control of the amount that I drink, well then... In the early 80s, when I was already in a lot of trouble, and Nancy Reagan came out and said, just say no, I, and I imagine a lot of you, would have gone, <coughs> and we just wander around saying no. Maybe once a year we'd get together for a just say no convention or something, high-five each other for a while, and then go back to our lives and be totally okay. But this other thing happened to me the very next morning, and the book calls it The Mental Obsession, and that my mind would rationalize and justify my way back to the next drink at all costs. Now, right there at 11 years old, a little puking going on is not that big of a price to pay. Easy to rationalize and justify. But by the time I got to Alcoholics Anonymous 15 years later, the same alcoholic mind was able to rationalize and justify handcuffs as a minor and temporary inconvenience. Now, the truth about handcuffs are that they are a symbol from society that say, we do not even trust you with your own hands. That's the truth about handcuffs. 
so right there at 11, I started drinking alcoholically as much as I could, as often as I could. And, uh, and it, we lived in Seattle. And a typical morning in seventh grade for me it would be I'd show up early for school, not for, like, study hall or anything, but to meet my new friends at the very edge of the school property, loser's corner. Every school has got that loser's corner. It's where everybody smokes cigarettes and tries to act cool. And, uh, and we would always have, uh, most mornings we would have a jar full of the parents' liquor cabinet mixture, right? That would be one kid would have to rip off his his parents' liquor cabinet the night before. Now, none of us had been to bartending or mixology school by that time, and so what would be in that jar would be equal amounts of whiskey, vodka, cream de mint, vermouth, and everything else that might be in there. There'd be green things floating around in that. There's about four or five of us, 11- and 12-year-olds, handing that around, trying to choke it down. And Of course, it was the early 70s, so we were smoking that commercial pot. Anybody remember that stuff? Four-finger lids, $10 a bag, seeds and stems and the whole bit. Yeah. And it was even before Ziploc days when it would just be a regular glad bag, and as you'd roll it up, there'd be about nine people spit on it, and you'd go, oh, man. And we'd pack all those seeds and stems and leaves into a homemade pipe, maybe made out of, made, made out of plumbing fittings and a screen, or if we were really desperate that morning, it would be a toilet paper roll with aluminum foil and pinholes in it. And we'd pack all those seeds and stems and leaves in there. We'd hit that lighter on it. The seeds and stems would be popping. We'd be burning holes in our clothes. And we'd look at each other and go, like, Are we going to school today? Uh, it's funny. I don't ever remember anybody saying, Yeah, we're late for math. We better get going. I don't remember that. <laughs> now, it's at this point that many people that speak in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous often interrupt themselves and say something like this. I don't mean to offend anybody, but drugs are a part of my story. I think it's a bizarre thing for alcoholics to apologize to other alcoholics for doing drugs while drinking or in between drunks. It's just bizarre that we apologize to each other for that. I understand apologizing to police officers, judges, parents, but I don't know why we apologize to each other. Um, in fact, the most bizarre example I've ever seen of that, it was a number of years ago, I was in a speaker meeting. And uh, the speaker that night was given one of the most ugly, heinous, blow-by-blow drunkologues I've ever heard. And i got to tell you, when I'm in a speaker meeting and the drunkologue gets ugly, the uglier it gets, the more excited I get. And that night, I think I was on the edge of my chair drooling, going, go, 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 go. And at one point in this ugly, heinous story, this speaker said, you know, I had four DUIs, and the judge said if I got one more DUI, I was going to go to prison for sure. And sure enough, two weeks later, I was on the freeway in a blackout. I hit a family of four. They all wound up in the hospital, and I wound up in prison. And in prison, I sodomized men. I was sodomized. And, oh, I don't mean to offend anybody, but I did some drugs, too. By the time I was 14, I was a neighborhood drunk and the neighborhood drug dealer. I forgot to mention, but my father was a neighborhood Lutheran minister. Uh, sure wish he would have been laughing about this like you guys. He wouldn't find anything funny about this at all. My parents, good, good people. It was no secret to them that I was just withering away in front of their eyes. I mean, before I started drinking at 11, I, ha I loved school. I had a vocabulary. I... Uh, you know, I, I was, you know, they hadn't seen grades in, in quite some time, and my hair was down in front of my eyes, and my vocabulary by the time I was 14 was, Bates would sum up by this. Wow. Man. Whoa. That was my vocabulary. But you see, my parents always blame my problems on people, places, and things. They always thought if we can get them away from that damn group of kids he's hanging out with, things would get better. They think if we can get them out of that damn public school system, things would get better. And they tried all of the above. But you see, I'm an alcoholic. My problems are not based upon people, places, and things. My problems are based upon my physical and mental relationship to alcohol. You see, all that happens, if you change the people, places, and things in somebody's life like mine, all that happens is that I'm loaded with different people in different places, ruining different things. That's all that happens. By the time I was about 17 or 18, I barely scraped out of the public school system there in Seattle, and uh, my parents decided that Seattle was the problem. And they figured if we can get them out of Seattle, things would get better. So they sent me across state, 300 miles away, to Washington State University. And I spent three years at that university on my parents' money, and I got approximately 10 credits in those three years. At any given time, my grade point average matched my blood alcohol content about a .25. Now, I'm not talking 2.5. That would be a C average, and I'd be very proud of that. 
I'm talking 0.25. That's like withdrawals, incomplete Fs, and an occasional D, maybe like in a bowling class or something. <laughs> By the time I was 22, this little story I'm about to tell you will let you know exactly where I stood with my family. Now, my father was Swedish, my mother is Icelandic, therefore I look like a polar bear. And I don't know whether this custom I'm about to tell you about is Scandinavian or whether it's Lutheran. I don't know. But at Christmas time, my parents wouldn't just send out Christmas cards, to, Christmas cards out to their friends and relatives. They would send out a big, long Christmas letter that said everything the family had been doing that year. And when I was about 22, I got a hold of one of these letters that had been sent out the previous Christmas. And as I read it, it let me know exactly where I stood with my family. The first paragraph talked about what my parents had been doing that year, and the second paragraph talked about what the Morris children had been doing that year. And that paragraph went something like this. Our oldest daughter, Christina, just graduated from Cornell University in Ithaca, New York, with a master's degree in marketing. She's now working for a large pharmaceutical company in the Midwest. She traveled, she traveled to Europe this summer. She saw this, she saw that. Her hobbies are this, this, and this, and she's a very happy young woman. We're very proud of her. Our oldest son, Eric, just graduated from Western Washington State University with a degree in advertising. He's now working for a large ad advertising firm here in Seattle. He loves to golf. He loves to travel. He's engaged to be married to this wonderful woman named Mary Lou, who works for a very small company here in Seattle named Microsoft. That was a while ago, mind you. <clears throat> and they love to golf together. They love to travel together. Uh, he's a very happy young man. We're very proud of him. Our youngest son, Carl, just turned 22. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> it's about this same time that, uh, I don't know what, I don't remember the specifics of it, but it was just one more time in jail, one more wrecked car, I don't remember, but, uh, you know, my folks have said, you know what, we've had it up to here. We've tried to help you again and again and again, and every time we try to help you, you spit in our face. If you want to live that way, go ahead, but you're not going to do it around here. Just go. I remember packing my car up that day, and I was going to head south. And uh, my cars, I'd had a lot of cars ever since I'd been 16 years old, and they always started out as perfectly good-used cars, but they would die of alcoholism along the way. I don't know if your cars did that, but mine did. And this will tell you exactly why I drank. If I were physically sober on any given morning, meaning I just haven't had a drink yet that day, and I come out of wherever I happen to be living, whether it be my parents' basement or a park, depending on what part of my life we're talking about, and I'm a little restless here, and discontent, twitchy, and just sort of frustrated, and I walk up to a car that I've owned for a while, and I see the dents and the broken windows, and I, man, I deserve better than this, and, and I'd get in, and I'd smell the rancid smell of stale alcohol in the carpets, and I'd see the cigarette and hot box burns on the seats, and I'd get madder by the second, and I turn that key and it's only hitting on one or two cylinders and I'm looking through a cracked windshield and the rearview mirror is hanging off on the side and some young guy would blaze by me on his way to work in a nice car and, you know, maybe flip me off or being in his way or blowing too much smoke out the back and, and I just, damn it, what do I got to do to get ahead in this hour? And all I'd have to do is go drink for a couple of hours. And after I would drink for a couple of hours, I would walk back up to that very same car. Now, as it approached that car, I'd say to myself, why, why that 62 Dodge Cornet is a classic. <laughs> and I'd get in, and it wouldn't smell bad anymore. And then the most miraculous thing that I ever experienced prior to coming to Alcoholics Anonymous would happen when I'd turn that key. Now, when I'd turn that key, it was like, boom. It's like a mechanic had been working on my car while I'd been drinking. And I'd think, well, look at the way they send corners at 70 miles an hour. This is a driving man's dream. And I'd wind up on your front lawn. Now, I had no idea that the ability for alcohol to totally change my perception of my surroundings and my reality was going to lead me to the gates of insanity, death, or here. In fact, right there at 11 years old, when I had that physical and mental relationship set up or that physical and mental reaction to alcohol, my choices from that day forward were jails, insanity, death, or Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm now uh, 14 years and 10 months clean and sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, and my choices have not changed. My choices are still jails, insanity, death, or Alcoholics Anonymous. So I guess that would kind of lead me to say that if those are my choices, if I drink again, jails, insanity, death, or Alcoholics Anonymous, why would I leave in the first place? Why not just stay? So, 
I headed south. I uh, packed my car up, headed south, lived on the streets of uh, Portland, Santa Cruz, streets of Hollywood uh, for about a year and a half. The only words to use for that period of my life are demoralizing. There's just no other words to use. A long story short, I'm back up in the Seattle area, and a drug deal goes very, very badly, just really, really badly, so badly that I joined the Navy. Um, <laughs> what I'm about to tell you should scare the daylights out of you, but on my way into the Navy, I passed a potential test. It's called the ASVAP test. And this test qualified me to become a nuclear engineer. That should scare you. That the Navy was even thinking possibly, maybe, or even remotely having any idea about putting somebody like me near anything nuclear. However, they made, they made me take another test when I showed up at that base and I could not pass that test. It's called a urinalysis test is what it's called. <laughs> I was immediately kicked out of the nuclear engineering group and transferred to this group that they affectionately called nuclear waste, is what they called us. And I'll never forget that day in boot camp. We'd been in boot camp for a couple of weeks, and the, all of a sudden this master arms walked into our barracks uh, and called off the names on that list who had gone positive on that first year analysis test. And we were yanked out of the boot camp company and put in this van and taken across the base, and we pulled up in front of this other administrative building on the other side of the base at Great Lakes Naval Station. And they told the other four or five guys to get out of the van, and they took them into that building. And I was told to wait in the van. And then the driver came back, and they took me to another building there on the base. And they marched me right into the commanding officer's office, the man who ran the whole Great Lakes Naval Station. Now, I'm kind of like, what's going on here? And they walk into this big office. I mean, plush carpeting, pictures of naval vessels all along the side, big oak desk, and this guy sitting back there with all this gold on. And they marched me right up in front, and he asked me my name. I I state my name, and he has this telephone on the desk, and he pushes the speakerphone button, and he says, Walt, it's my father's name. My father was a reservist chaplain for 40 years in the, in the Navy, ever since World War II when he was active, and this was an old World War II buddy of my father's. Because my last name is spelled rather uniquely for, uniquely for the name Morris, he, it sort of just sent up some antenna, and he looked into it, and he found out, he, wow, that's Walt's son. So he was actually trying to be kind or maybe trying to find a way out or something, and he called my father, and he said into that uh, speakerphone, well, Walt, I have your son here. Uh, he, is, uh, he went positive on the very first year analysis for, for cocaine, and technically we're supposed to be uh, kicking him out for fraudulent enlistment. What do you think we ought to do with him? And I heard the voice, my father's voice, come over the, the speakerphone there on that desk, and it said, none of my concern. Click. Dial tone. If I could have slithered out of that office underneath that carpet, I would have, because I had been embarrassing my family in the north end of Seattle for years. Now I'm embarrassing my father on a national level. They kept me in the Navy as a conventional electrician anyway. Uh, uh, they took away that nuclear status, and so I was uh, supposed to be an electrician there in the Navy. And I've got to tell you, for about a year and a half, they wouldn't even let me stand watch on a light switch. I, uh, and I'd been in a year and a half, and I was a lower rank than when I first came in. It's, it's just... It would happen like this. When I was out at, on that ship in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, I could not deny the fact that I was in the United States Navy. I would look around that ship. I'm on a big gray ship in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. I'm in a uniform. I'm with other guys in the same uniform. It's very, very obvious to me that I am in the United States Navy. However, when that ship would pull into a port and I would leave the ship and take a drink, I would totally forget that I'm in the Navy. And I would come back to where I had last seen the ship when the drunk was over. And sometimes the ship was no longer there. It's a very lonely feeling on one of those big, big piers when you're looking for a 300-foot naval vessel. It's also very hard to explain to your superiors, especially when you don't know how it happened either. Anyway, this one morning, I, I was uh, driving my car into the base. Uh, I was late. I'd been drinking all weekend. I had a bottle between my legs. And at every naval installation, there is a uh, guard shack at the front of the base. If you're going to park your car on the base, you have to slowly pull up. The Marine that stands duty there will check your military ID, check the sticker on your car. If everything's in order, he will allow you to park on the base. This particular morning, I guess there was a depth perception problem going on. They say it was on my part. Uh, but all of a sudden, I could see the whites of the Marine's eyes as he stuck his head out of that guard shack, and I looked down, and I'm going like 35, 40 miles an hour, and I 
I tried to swerve, and I hit this median on the right-hand side, and the car flipped up on its side, and bam, right through the guard shack. I can still see this Marine doing this big dive out of there. <clears throat> the Navy was very angry with me that morning. And in the hospital, they were patching me up. Not too much damage that particular morning. Marine was okay. And, uh, but the most significant thing that happened that morning is that the Navy prescribed for me medical science's best shot at the alcoholic. They prescribed anabuse. And when they gave this prescription to me, the Navy doctors gave me a warning about drinking on top of anabuse, and I filed that for future reference. And they sent this prescription back to the ship's doctor, and every morning I had to show up at sick bay, and the corpsman would put this little white pill on my tongue and make me sit there for a half an hour. Over the next few weeks, I started to experience the most cunning, baffling, and powerful side of this disease called alcoholism, and that is that I had developed a mental obsession and a spiritual malady so severe that nothing but a spiritual awakening or a total rearrangement at the level of my soul was going to solve. No amount of discipline, no amount of other people's love, no amount of... Uh, a career change if I possibly could have had anything like that. Nothing was going to change what was going on with me. I was so, so soul sick. I literally was at what the book calls the jumping off place. I could not imagine life continuing on, continuing on drinking the way I was, but I at the same time could not imagine life not drinking. I'm in the ultimate catch-22 of alcoholism. And I remember counting those days on that abuse. I remember just... Oh. In about four days, and <clears throat> I'm on anabuse. <laughs> now it's been about six days, and I'm on anabuse. Now it's been about eight days, <clears throat> six hours. And 15 minutes, and I'm on anabuse. I started to look around that ship, and the other men, they were talking behind my back. All 300 of them. You ever felt that way in AA? The only difference is that in AA, <clears throat> we are talking behind your back. <laughs> but only with love and tolerance in Las Vegas, I'm sure. <laughs> On about the tenth day, my uh, division officer asked me to do a very legitimate task, but I couldn't believe that he had asked me to do this lowly task out of all the other men in the division, he asked me to do this. So I told him how I felt. Military officers are very concerned with their subordinates' feelings. <laughs> so I looked at him and I said, You obviously don't know who I am, do you? And he turned on his heels and stared me down. And up until today, I have never, never been asked a more embarrassing question than the question he asked me on that day. He turned on me, he stared me down, he said, All right, who are you? I'm like, <clears throat> hmm. Later that day, I just snapped and I went AWOL from the ship and I locked myself in the ho a little hotel room in downtown San Diego, Plaza Hotel on 4th and Broadway. Lovely little hotel. And I bought a bottle of vodka and a shot glass. And I sat on the edge of this little bed and the bottle of vodka and the shot glass were sitting on this little rickety little end table there. And I, as I sat there and stared at the bottle of vodka, I remembered that the Navy doctors had given me that warning about drinking on top of anabuse. And what they had said to me was, son, if you drink on top of anabuse, you'll get one of two reactions. One reaction is you will get violently ill. The other reaction is you might die. I remember sitting there thinking, hmm, I wonder which reaction I'm going to get. <clears throat> and I took one shot. And nothing happened. Authority had lied to me again as far as I was concerned. I waited about two minutes just to make sure. <clears throat> and took another shot. All of a sudden, I felt tingly in the face, so I looked in this cracked little mirror that was in this little hotel room, and I was bright red, blotchy and purple in places. Hmm. Took another shot. All of a sudden, I could feel my heart going boom, boom, boom. Looked at my shirt. I was drenched in sweat, and then all of a sudden, I was like <gasps> hyperventilating. 
We're doing all right so far. It's all right. I've got to tell you, this is a very sick group if you think this is funny. In fact, I have proof of that. About 12 years ago when I got out of the Navy, I went back to college simply because that, that amends step, you know. I either had to pay my parents back for that bachelor's degree they paid for or I had to go get what they had paid for. And so I uh, signed up and I went to school and, and in order to get some of the general ed credits out of the way in the beginning, I took this speech class and in the first couple of days of this speech class, the instructor was just randomly pointing at students and throwing them up in front of the classroom and giving them a topic and just told them to talk on it for three to five minutes just to see how they would do. And after about five or six students got up there, all of a sudden he pointed at me, threw me up there in front of the class, and from the corner of the classroom he said, talk about a bizarre situation in your life. So I was put on the spot. I didn't know what else to do. I told him about drinking on top of an abuse. They didn't react the way you guys are reacting tonight. They looked at me like, oh. It took me months to get any friends in out of that class. I was... <laughs> so I'm back in the hotel room and I took another shot and up it came my late sponsor Eddie C calls this next thing that happened to, to me projectile regurgitation just, just straight up and out thank God the Plaza Hotel is a type of hotel room where the toilet is in the same room as the bed now this is this, this sort of uh, throwing up on an abuse was very different than what I was used to. See, one of the tools for living that I had gained out there in the 15 years that I was drinking is what I like to call socially throwing up. That's where you can be anywhere. You can be at your job, you can be driving, you can be at your grandmother's house, you can be, you know, at a party, wherever, and you get that little warning, little sour taste in the back of your throat, maybe a little bit comes up into the back of your mouth and you kind of go, mm, and you find the appropriate place to, to throw up. You know, if you're driving, you try to get the window down. If, you, if there's a bathroom, you try to get to that. If there's a bush, you use that. If all that's left is your friend's shoe, well, then you use that. Right? But you get a little warning. But here on the sand abuse, no warning, just up and out. I found the magic of drinking on top of an abuse, and that is that if you don't die and you hang in there, those two things must come together at the same time. You don't die and you hang in there. And with me, if I hung in there and drank and puked and drank and puked for approximately one to two hours, enough of the antibiotics would kick out of my system and I would quit, quit throwing up. And I would just be left with red face, hyperventilating and sweating, and I already told you, I'm all right with that. <laughs> I drank on top of antibiotics for approximately uh, seven months. Uh, my second to the last drunk, I was left for dead in a motel parking lot in National City, California. Uh, that morning when I came to after I had been left in this motel parking lot in a pool of blood I came to and you know how we sometimes try to look when we come to we look around at our surroundings to try to figure out you know what actually happened last night how much trouble am I in you know and there's certain indicators that you look for that say you're in serious trouble and one of those indicators was there that morning and that indicator is bright bright lights shining down and men and women in surgical masks with tools in their hands. That is a sign of real trouble the night before. And that was, they were trying to, they were having to uh, wire my jaw shut and reset it back. And, you know, here's an example of my alcoholic mind. Five days later, I'm leaving that hospital with my jaw wired shut, stitches all through my face. And I'm being helped down the stairs by another man from my ship. And as I was going down those, now I'm fully medically detoxed. I have no alcohol of any significance to cause the phenomenon of craving of any type, no physical craving at all in my system. And I'm being helped down those stairs. And I turned to that guy that was helping me down those stairs, and I said, if there's any time I need a drink, it's now. <laughs> I could not differentiate the true from the false. I could not see that drinking had put me into that position. There, I just could not see it on that day. My last night of drinking, I'm being let out of the San Diego jail by the, uh, by the shore patrol and being brought back to my ship. And I was being brought up to the quarter deck in handcuffs. And the officer of the deck put his arm up like this. And he said, I'm sorry. We processed orders on him last night. 
And the orders are, we are not to accept him on board this ship. The orders are 90 days in the brig, bad conduct discharge, or... And then he got this really disgusted look on his face before he said this next statement. Because he was a, a guy who cared about the military. He cared about his country, and he did a very good job. And there's a lot of men that, that, that do that in the military. And guys like me just take... Take and all I had, all I had ever done with the Navy is cost them a lot of money and time, and that's exactly the way he viewed it, viewed me. And when he got to this last part of the orders, that's why he got the disgusted look on his face. He said, "Or according to the Uniform Code of Military Justice, we have to offer him treatment first before we can discharge him." Now I did not stand there and go, "Yay, treatment! This sounds wonderful. This is a good day to get sober." I did not. That was not a, much of a turning point for me. I just remember, it was just, all I remember is just one of those mornings where the handcuffs are extra tight, neck muscles are not working very well, and there's authoritative type figures that are standing there making decisions for you. That's all I remember. And I was turned around, thrown back in the shore patrol van, taken up to the, uh, this treatment center up at Miramar. Uh, it's, it's where the Top Gun Naval School is, the pilot school. Our little section was called Top Drunk is what they called us. And I was taken to this treatment center, and they took the handcuffs off when the doors were locked behind me. And everybody, so there I am. And everybody that showed up over that same week from various bases, about 35 uh, people showed up that week, and we're all going to go do this 45-day thing together. In the first couple of days, we were all just sort of sitting there in these group therapy sessions, staring at the floor, and nobody saying anything. And all of a sudden, this one guy raised his hand. His name was Paco. He was from some other base somewhere. And he raised his hand to talk. And he says... I hear I'm supposed to be rigorously honest if I'm going to stay sober. I want you guys to know that Paco's not my real name. It's just a street name that I've had ever since I've been a young kid. And if I'm going to do this staying sober thing, I want to be honest and let you guys know what my real name is. My real name's Randy. Will you guys call me Randy from now on? The rest of us just kind of looked up from the floor just enough time to say, Great, nice to meet you, Randy, and look back down at the floor. But the assistant facilitator who's been, who was looking out for us in that first week got really excited over this and said, Oh my God, this is the first honesty, breakthrough of honesty of any of you SOBs. Later that afternoon, Randy was paraded in front of us. They slapped a gold name tag on him that said Randy, and then the rest of us were informed that whenever staff was not around, Randy's in charge. <laughs> oh, we loved him. We just loved him. On about the seventh day in this place, they took us all to our first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. At least it was my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I had never been to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous before. I, don't, I had no prior opinion as to what Alcoholics Anonymous was or was not. I knew there was such a thing called Alcoholics Anonymous. But I, uh, I don't know. Just never had run across you guys. And all I know is they said, everybody in civilian clothes, 6 p.m. out in the parking lot. And then all of a sudden, there we are standing there in civilian clothes. Five white vans pull up. They start calling off names as to which van to go into. They didn't even tell us where we're going. And boom, out in town we go. Next thing I know, I'm sitting in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. We're sitting there in the back, and they started to do this reading. And in my recollection, a bunch of people shared for a short period of time. So that tells me that I was in a participation meeting. I didn't know that there were different types of meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't know there were speaker meetings, step studies, regular participation meetings, meditation. I didn't know any of that. All I, all I really remember is that they did some reading, and then a bunch of people talked for a very short, brief periods of time. But as I sat in the back of that meeting, I started to get this feeling in the middle of my belly. And that feeling was, oh my God, they know. They know. Now, I wasn't quite sure what it was that they knew that I thought I knew. But I knew that you guys knew. And what was happening on that day is that, you see, all of our lives, in, in every life of every alcoholic, especially mine and I'm sure yours, we all have those ugly, ugly, dirty, dark secrets that we swear we're going to never tell anybody. You know that thing that happened in the middle of that night where you know that even being anywhere around that situation fundamentally changed you as a human being. We all have those. But there had been this other thing that had just been eating away at me for years. And I couldn't have put it, put it to words because I didn't even know what it was. But sitting in that meeting, I heard for the very first time somebody describing it. And what it was that had been killing me for years is that whenever, whenever people or authority figures, whether it be parents, police, or the military, were, getting, were yelling at me about my drinking, 
I would have wanted to have said this back to them. See, when they'd be yelling at me about my drinking and I'm just standing there keeping my mouth shut, I would have wanted to say, yes, 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 I know, I know it looks bad. I know, yes, I, I see, yes, I, 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 yes, I see my drinking seems to be out of hand. Yet, yes, I see that burning car over there. I understand, yes, it looks bad. But I would have wanted to say to him, but, but if you knew how I felt when I wasn't drinking, you wouldn't be asking me why I drink. And I didn't know how to put that into words, but in one way or another, through the reading and those people sharing in that meeting, I got a little glimpse that you guys knew that. You guys knew that. I'll never forget this one guy. I, I don't remember anything in particular of that meeting except for this one guy. And he walked up to that front of that meeting. It was podium participation. He got called and he walked all the way to the front and he introduced himself and he said one sentence and he sat down. He said, my name's Jack. I'm an alcoholic. My mind would have killed my body a long time ago, except it needed it for transportation. And he sat down. <laughs> I sat there like, whoa. Followed him all the way back to his chair. Like. Next night, we went to another meeting. And I got very confused at this meeting because everybody at this meeting was getting up saying, well, my drug of choice is. And somebody else said, well, my drug of choice is. And the more they said that, the more confused I got. I was sitting there thinking, was I supposed to be choosing out there? Do they want me to choose now? What are they talking about? Next morning, I'm back at the treatment center, and I asked the counselor that, that had been assigned to us. Her name was Mary Weber, a non-alcoholic. Alcoholics, I view her as a saint in my life, because a non-alcoholic working with us? <laughs> I mean, we have to work with each other to save our lives, but... <clears throat> and she was very good at what she did. I said, I, in that next, that next day, I said, Mary, last night in the, that meeting, they were talking about something called a drug of choice. What on earth do they mean by that? Now, I'm only eight days into this thing. I'm still shaking. I'm twitching. I'm seeing things out the side of my eyes. And, and she says, let's play a game. And I'm like, all right. She said, let's, let's pretend I walked into this room, Carl, and I had a tray. And on that tray, I had a bottle of Jack Daniels, an ounce of cocaine, and an ounce of tie sticks. Which one would you take? I started to drool immediately. Just, oh, I take them all. And she started to snap. Settle down. Settle down. My eyes came back into focus, and she said, you can only have one. Which one would you take? I thought for a second. I said, well, Mary, I guess if I can only have one, I guess I'd take the ounce of cocaine. She said, well, then maybe cocaine is your drug of choice. Do you understand now? I said, no. She said, what's the problem? I said, well, Mary, the only reason I take the ounce of cocaine over the other two is well, I'd take that ounce of cocaine, I'd get the hell out of here, and I'd sell two eight balls. Now I'd have enough money to buy a quarter pound of tie sticks and a case of Jack Daniels. That's what I would do. Now, the only reason I bring that up is to bring up a point about a very important aspect of Alcoholics Anonymous, and that is sobriety dates. It's a very important aspect of sobriety is a sobriety date. If you don't have one, you should certainly get one soon. <laughs> but if you work with a lot of new people these days, which I assume you do, you must run across the same scenario that I do quite often see a new guy around my, my home group and I say, hey, good to see you. How long do you got? And every once in a while I hear this. Well, my drinking sobriety date is January 4th. My pot clean date is May 3rd. Oh, I blew my methamphetamine date last night. I was, I was in Walmart all night long. I, uh, <laughs> trying to juggle three different sobriety dates. One sobriety date. One sobriety date. Let's see. Uh, the... I think it's kind of funny that we have to clap on that. <laughs> the funniest thing I've ever heard about sobriety dates is, same scenario, I was at my home group and I saw this guy that I'd seen around for a while and I went up to him and I said, hey, good to see you, how long do you got? And he said, well, I had 90 days, but I drank last night, so now I have 89 days. I was like, ah. I didn't quite know what to say back. I was like, wow. I think that kind of falls into the same category as being down in Mexico and looking at the tequila going, would that affect my U.S. sobriety date? <laughs> yes, sobriety dates are international also.
So after 45 days, going to let us all out of this treatment center, just what the orders were. And that was a Friday they were going to let us out on. on. On the Wednesday before that Friday, they gathered all 35 of us up and put us in this room. And there, were, there was this lectern or a podium up front, and we were all kind of sitting there going, <sighs> you know, we're all kind of signing. I'm sure we were all signing our big books, yeah. You know, we'll see you at meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, yes, and have a bitchin' summer, right, you know. <laughs> But we're all kind of sitting there, and this biggest, meanest counselor in the place walks in, and he's a gunnery sergeant marine. He's in his full-dress uniform on that day. And a marine in his full-dress uniform is a very impressive and intimidating sight. And he walked in there, and he grabbed both sides of that podium, and he just stared us all down. And we just all went, <clears throat> I mean, it was quiet in there. And he didn't say a word for what seemed like eternity, and he just stared every one of us down. Just panned the room. And then he spoke. He said, you 35 have been through one of the finest treatment centers in the world for alcoholism. We've been here for many, many years. And statistics through the years have shown us that out of you 35, only one of you will stay continuously sober from this day forward. Many of you will die, go insane, wind up in prison. Many of you will relapse once, twice, maybe 20 times, and then make it back into long-term sobriety. But according to this treatment center statistics, only one of you will stay continuously sober from this day forward. If you thought it was quiet before he said that, I mean it was dead silent now. You could hear a pin drop in that room. All you could hear was me going, shit. Because <laughs> I knew if only one of us was going to make it, it wasn't going to be me. We all knew who it was going to be. It was going to be Randy over here, guaranteed. He's like the poster boy of the treatment center by now. So on this Friday afternoon, they're letting us all out, and there's about four or five of us that had been arrested in a vehicle the night before. Uh, the rest, everybody got picked up by various commands in various different ways, and, uh, and there's about four or five of us standing on the front doorstep of the treatment center with our sea bags at our feet, waiting for our cars to come out of impound. And when they brought my car out, they brought out what I like to call my Rolls Canardly. That's the kind of car that rolls down one hill and can hardly make it up the next. It was a 68 Volkswagen hole in the floorboard. Had to push start the thing, you know, just hitting on one or two cylinders. And we're standing there on that front doorstep, and all of a sudden, one of the guys point, one guy points to the other edge of the parking lot. There's a car slowly coming towards us, and he goes, "Hey, is that Randy in that car?" We all look over. Yeah, that seems to be Randy. And one of the other guys says, "He's drinking already." Sure enough, we look closer, and he gets a little closer, and we see he's got a pint. He's just polishing it off. And he rolls down the window, he throws that empty right at our feet, crash! We look up, he's giving us all the finger, and he's driving right off. I guess his name was Paco again, I don't know. You know, I wish they, uh, hopefully maybe they have changed uh, that particular last little pep talk they give you on that Wednesday before that Friday. Uh, I wish they would... Maybe they have, but if they haven't, I wish they would change it to, if that guy was going to give us that talk, say something like this. Out of you 35, those of you that leave this treatment center and immediately hook up into those meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous that we've been taking to you to three to five times a week since you've been here in treatment, if you immediately hook up into those meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous and you do everything you can to stay there and you find yourself a sponsor and you go to meeting after meeting after meeting, and you work those steps, and you read that book, and you learn how to give away and work with others, 50% of you that do that will stay continuously sober from this day forward. Another 25% will have a little trouble in the beginning and then find long-term sobriety. Of, of, those, of, of you 35 that do not hook up into Alcoholics Anonymous, you will all die, go insane, or go to prison. That would be a more truthful statement that they, they could have said. I, because uh, it's true, it's true. So later that afternoon after this little incident with Randy on the front doorsteps there, <clears throat> next thing that I remember that day is I showed up at a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, the North Shore Alano Club in Pacific Beach, north end of San Diego. Friday night, 6 p.m. gong show meeting. And I'm sitting in the back of this meeting, and the truth about my life is I'm 45 days without a drink or a drug. I'm in the best physical condition I've been in since I've been a young teenager. 
and I've got a lot of information. There had been no spiritual awakening, spiritual, spiritual experience, or personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism. It hadn't happened. I was in better physical condition, information, 45 days without a drink or a drug in my system. I'm sitting in the back of this meeting, and I don't know anybody. One guy that night operating, operating on his primary purpose leans over to me and says, Hey, never seen you here before. What are you doing? I didn't think quick enough to lie to him because I promise you, if I would have thought for a second, I would have made up some sort of story to get him away from me. But I, this is what I said, and I did not know it would create the reaction that it did. I said, uh, I don't know, I just got out of a Navy treatment center earlier today and got me. I don't know what I'm doing. This guy's eyes went bing, big smile went across his face. He looked like a fisherman in Cabo San Lucas who just landed the big one. It's like, yeah! I didn't know there were guys in Alcoholics Anonymous who would lurk around looking for guys who don't know what they're doing. You know, this is the kind of guy that he was fighting his friends off. He's mine, he's mine, he's mine. This guy was really excited to meet me for two reasons. Number one, he's just that kind of guy in Alcoholics Anonymous who understood that that was his solution. There's something else going on in this guy's life that particular night that made him especially glad to meet me. This guy's girlfriend had left him the night before for another man in his home group. <laughs> so he was wondering what to do with his weekend. Homicide, suicide, get loaded, or grab this newcomer. He's like all over me all weekend. We went to like 18 meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous that weekend. And this guy was just crazy over this woman all weekend. In between this barrage of meetings we went to, in between the meetings, he'd throw me into the passenger side of his car, and he'd start driving, and he'd start yelling. He wouldn't even look at the road. He had like one of those AA radar cars that just made it to the next meeting. And he'd start yelling at me. He'd go, you got to go to meetings. you got to read the book. you got to get a sponsor. Damn her. you got to go to meetings. you got to read the book. Damn her. And I'm like... Now, I didn't know that I was getting a very early introduction to your typical AA relationship breakup. I didn't know that. But I'm so very glad that that man that night was a guy in Alcoholics Anonymous who had done the work of Alcoholics Anonymous, had taken the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, and understood that the solution to his pain was out of self. Out of self, out of self. I am so very glad that on that particular night he was not at home in the pain. Granted, relationship breakups are painful. We all know that. It's one of the most painful things we go through. But I'm so very glad that that man in that pain that particular night was not at home underneath his covers whining into his sponsor's answering machine. She laughed. I am so glad he was out there dragging my sorry ass around. See, he didn't have any idea that I might stay sober or something really significant might happen in my life at that weekend. He was just using me as a prop in his weekend so that he wouldn't drink and stay reasonably sane and comfortable and not do something stupid. But that particular weekend, I learned something extremely valuable about how we go to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. In that barrage of meetings that we went to all in the same area of north end of San Diego, I saw other people going to multiple meetings over that weekend. Now, I didn't see anybody else doing 18 meetings, just me and that guy. But I saw other people that were at two and three meetings over that weekend. Now, what I learned about how we go to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm going to correlate it to a football game. Now, a football team is out there on the field for one reason and one reason only, to win the game. And how do they win that game? They will huddle up, they'll make a plan, and they'll do one play. And then they will huddle up again, make a new plan, and they will do one play. It's exactly what we do here in Alcoholics Anonymous. And the game around here is one day without a drink or a drug, you're a big winner. And how do we do that one day? We run in here and we huddle up. We go, remember, bodily, mentally different from our fellows. Break! And we go out there and we try a little of this, try a little of that, do a little of this, and we run right back in here and we huddle up. <clears throat> we huddle up and we go, remember, your bodily mind are different from our fellows. Just before we break, some guy in the corner might go, wait, 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 hang on. Hang on, I, I've been here for six months. I, I'm sober, but I'm broke and I'm bored. What do I do? Some old timer will get up and say, get a job, break. And we go out there and we try a little of this, try a little of that. And I've got to remember that I'm bodily and mentally different from my fellows. <sighs> K 
came back from that weekend and came back to my ship and the one other recovering alcoholic. Lots of other alcoholics, only one other recovering alcoholic on that ship. His name was Bob W. And he just scooped me up and started doing the exact same things that that guy over the weekend started to do. He started to drag me to meetings, drag me to meetings, and hound me about that book and drag me to meetings. And he started to do what a sponsor does even before I asked him to sponsor. He didn't worry whether I was going to ask him to be my sponsor or wait and say, well, I'll wait and see before I do anything. He just dove right in there and started doing it. And we went to lots of meetings and when I was about six, seven months sober, our ship had to go out to sea for an extended period of time. And, and he said, every night, Carl, you're going to meet me in the very bottom aft end of that ship in the little battery shop, and we will have our own little meeting. That's how we're going to get through this extended period of time. Because I was like, at meet, every time I'd leave that meeting, meeting, meetings, I was loving meetings. I was just loving, I was just in, engulfed in meetings, meetings, coffee shops, coffee shops, coffee shops, more meetings, 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 coffee shops, <laughs> throwing a dance, and then coffee shops and meetings, 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 meetings. <laughs> but avoiding Alcoholics Anonymous. <clears throat> Sounds strange, doesn't it? And the very first night that I met him in the aft end of that ship, he came down there and he had that blue book in his hand again. <clears throat> and he threw it down on the table and he said, well, we've been to lots of meetings. I've been hounding you about this. Have you read it yet? Well, yeah, yeah sure. There's like uh, how it works. We antagonist some doctor with some opinion about something. Tell you, I was six, maybe almost seven months sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I probably did not even know the difference between Dr. Silkworth, Dr. Bob, and Dr. Paul. I bet you anything, there's about a hundred people in the back that's going, oh, what, what, hmm. what did he mean by that? Hmm. And at that point, you could have cornered me in the side, in the back of a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and said, son, your life depends on your answer to this question, and it would have. What does it mean to be powerless over alcohol that your life would become unmanageable? And I would have stuttered and stammered and sort of talked about crazy things I did while I was drinking and just sort of like avoided that I would not have been able to specifically say why I'm powerless over alcohol that my life would become unmanageable. And Bob knew that. Now what's amazing is Bob was 14 months sober at this time. And he's one of those guys that had caught fire with Alcoholics Anonymous and had a great sponsor. and. What he did was he opened up that book down there in that little aft end of, in the bottom of that ship in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and started reading the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous to me right from the beginning. And when he got tired, he would hand it to me and I would read. And then he would share as we went. Every few paragraphs, he would share what he had been told about what that stuff was saying. And then we he did a very unique thing that I find these days. It shouldn't be unique, but unfortunately is. It is unique. Hopefully, not really that unique, but un too unique. When we got to a point in the book where it said to do something, he would close the book. And we would do it before we would continue on. And in that way, he tricked me into the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> and when we got back to San Diego after 21 days out at sea, I had this list that he was just ecstatic about. I didn't like the list very much at all. I was not excited about it at all. He loved that list. He just thought it was the greatest list around. Now he had something new to hound me about. Oh. I, I, during that period of time also, I, I really truly got a first-hand view through him what it means and how one alcoholic can affect another alcoholic like no other alcoholic can like no other person can. How one alcoholic can uniquely affect another alcoholic like nobody else in society can. What happened was our ship was in Victoria, B.C. And whenever our ship would pull into port and we both did, wouldn't have duty, we would scoot out into, into town and go to as many meetings as we can, find the Alano Club, find whatever meetings. And if we possibly could, we would rent a hotel room so we could stay off the ship for that night. And this one night we were in Victoria and uh, after the meeting I went out with the AAers for a while and he, he said he was tired. He went back to the hotel room that we, had, we were splitting and uh, a few hours later I get back to the hotel room and I open up the door and there's Bob with the big book and this guy named Blair who is from our ship who is just wasted, just can't even sit on the bed. And Bob's reading the big book to him. And I'm thinking, now this is ridiculous. Bob is really desperate to stay sober tonight. I mean, it's a, this guy's not going to remember it. 
damn thing that Bob is saying. He can't even see straight. So I think it's just kind of silly, and I just kind of walk by, and I go over to my side of the room and roll over, turn my light out, and go to sleep. About a week later, we're down in, in San, back in San Diego in port, and it's about 3 a.m. I'm in my, in my rack in the birthing, and all of a sudden, I hear, bam, 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 Carl, wake up! And it's Bob. It's 3 a.m., and he's waking, and he goes, Blair's on the Coronado Bridge, we're going to get him. He's like, holy smoke. And what apparently had happened earlier that night was that Blair had just had it up to here with life, like we do, and he climbed up to the Coronado Bridge in San Diego, and I don't know if you know about the Coronado Bridge, it's very popular for suicide, so popular for suicide, in fact, that they actually have a suicide hotline phone at the very top of that bridge. It's often referred to as the chicken out phone in, uh, in AA. Well, apparently Blair had climbed up there and picked up that suicide hotline phone, I guess, and started talking to the people that answered on the other, other end of the line. And apparently he had said, I will only talk to Bob W. <clears throat> now the people at the suicide hotline uh, center are going, who's Bob W? And he, w he responded, it's anonymous. Anyway, they somehow got out of Blair what ship he was from and that he was in the Navy and what ship he was from. And in the suicide hotline, people called down to our ship, to the, to the quarter deck, and they asked for, do you guys know somebody named Bob W? And my first sponsor, Bob, did not guard his own anonymity at the level of that ship. He would guard anybody else's with his life, but he did not worry about his so that he could be of service whenever it became necessary on that ship. And sure enough, the guy on duty that night said, yeah, 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 we know, Mr. 12-step. Yep, yep, yep. And they ran and got Bob. And then Bob's downed out and down in my berthing going, come on, Blair's down the Coronado Bridge and uh, we're going to get him. So we hop in Bob's car and we're driving down there and Bob says, Grab the big book out of the glove box. Read Working with Others. We'll bone up on that. And I open it up and I see, well, see your man alone if possible. And he goes, well, sure enough, he's alone up there, isn't he? Yep. <laughs> then he just says, oh, forget it. We'll wing it. And we, we get on down there to, to this scene down there at the bottom of the Coronado Bridge. And there's paramedics. The fire department's there. They got the, the on-duty psychologist that works with the county. Everything that San Diego County has available for a situation like this was there. And they're just don't know what to do. Bob and I walk up, and, and the fire chief looks and says, "Is one of you Bob W?" And uh, Bob goes, "Yeah, that's me." He goes, "Well, we've been talking to him for about an hour and a half. He's not budging. I don't know. I have no idea why, but here, go ahead and give it a shot." Bob got on that phone and he goes, "Blair," and you can hear on the other end, "Bob, is that you?" Bob goes. Yes, Blair, it's me. Now get the hell down from that bridge. And you can hear on the other end, okay. <laughs> One alcoholic can affect another alcoholic like nobody else can. After two years sober, I got an honorable discharge out of the Navy. It's the very first thing that I ever accomplished in my life, well, since Cub Scouts. I made it out of Cub Scouts. Got kicked out of Weeblos. So there I am, 27 years old, honorable discharge out of the Navy, very first thing that had ever documented that I had completed something. It was an amazing thing. Program of Alcoholics Anonymous and Loving and Very Merciful God. And through having to make financial amends, I'm leaving the Navy, push-starting that same car with everything I own in the back of that Volkswagen and moving up to the Los Angeles area to go to school because, as I told you, I needed to make, make amends for that bachelor's degree. And I push-start that car and hop in, and I'm puttering on up, up those busy freeways in Los Angeles, and I'm puttering along, and I'm starting to think, you know what, I need a life. <clears throat> I really, really need a life. And this, look at this car. I'm two years sober and Alcoholics Anonymous. And, Man, I, I, I need a life. I need it quick. I've heard people talk about that, and they, they, they said they got a life, and, and I need to get one of those. And you know what? I'm going to go to school. I'm going to work, and I'll stop by some meetings when I get a chance, but I'm going to go get a, get a life, and then I'll come back to meetings and once I get a life. Right about that same time, some guy blazed right by me on his way to work or something, and I'm puttering along, and I'm, damn it, how did he get ahead in this world? 
and I pulled into a noon meeting in Covina. I only meant to go there for a noon meeting. And I came into this noon, this noon meeting and there was a man in there named Eddie Cochran. And uh, I was early for the meeting. He was at that time 37 years sober, meaning he was 10 years sober when I was born. And he was making coffee at the noon meeting. And he had on a very funny looking Hawaiian shirt, shorts and mismatched socks. But he had this look in his eye and he just, he stopped what he was doing when I walked in and I kind of sat down and he sat down and he started talking with me. And I tried to explain to him, I'm very glad to know where this meeting hall is. That's just great. I'm fresh out of the Navy. I'm two years sober and I, I, I'm going to be going to school. I'm going to work and I'm just really glad to know that this meeting hall is here so that when I get a chance, I'll be stopping by some meetings if I ever get into trouble or, you know, I'm in between, uh, you know, my work and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, I got to get a life and I'm just glad to know this meeting hall is here. And I'm so very glad that he was the type of man that talked to me like a real alcoholic because any non-alcoholic if I'd been having this discussion with a non-alcoholic that, you know what, I need to cut way down on meetings and I need to go to school and I need to work and I need to get a life, a non-alcoholic would say, you know what, you're right. You really need to buckle down on your life and, you know, wasting those time, so much time in those AA meetings, you really ought to consciously cut down on those and, you know, stop by one, uh, one a week or something like that. But really, yeah, young man, go for it. Eddie just looked at me and he gave me an answer designed for alcoholics. He laughed at me first, like he always did, just chuckled, and, and he said, school and work, that's, a, those are, that's wonderful. School and work are great things for anybody recovering from alcoholism and trying to get a life together, but uh, school and work, that's what we do in between meetings, son. He was giving me the secret to, to success in life, that I need to look at life as what I can get done in between meetings. And what, what he was really telling me is that I needed to have a total and complete spiritual centeredness of who and what I am, what my problem is, what my solution is, and what the plan of action to bring about that solution in my life is, and that needs to be first. And everything else has got to be way below that in priorities in my life. The very first thing that he told me I needed to do was put newcomers in that car. And I said, Eddie, I have to push start this car. It has a hole in the floorboard. One of them might fall through the floorboard. I'm embarrassed to put anybody in this car. He said, if you put new guys in that car, Carl, I promise you, your life will get better. I figured, well, since he was 10 years sober, I would, when I was born, <laughs> that I'd give this a shot. And I, I, sure enough, the very first night that I took his direction and put new guys in that car, my life got better. The new guys could push start the car. <laughs> he didn't say how much better, he just said better. I'm going to wrap it up and try to, uh, as, as best I can, let you know what Alcoholics Anonymous has done in my life by telling you this one little story. It, it, it sums it up better than anything I could, I could really tell you, because it just, it, it's endless. It's endless what, how Alcoholics Anonymous has affected my life and everybody's life that loves me. I, uh, a couple of years ago, I was asked to go down and give a talk down in Nogales, Arizona, a campout type talk. and. Uh, I got sort of frustrated when I realized where Nogales, Arizona was <clears throat> and that it's a camp out type thing and I know they're going to give me this little tent on the side of the road and the pickup trucks are probably going to be driving by about three feet from where my tent is. And, but I, you know, I said I would do it so I was on my way just about ready to leave and before I leave and go to a place where I have a nationwide pager but there are certain blackout spots I've learned where it doesn't work and I figured if there's ever a blackout spot it's Nogales, Arizona down here and so I called up my mother like I always would if I ever have any idea that my pager might not work for any period of time. And I called up my mom and I said, Mom, I'm going to be in Nogales, Arizona this weekend and my pager might not work. If you need to get a hold of me, leave a voicemail and I'll check every once in a while. And she said, Nogales, Arizona, that's wonderful. Don and Leona live just north of there. Why don't you give them a call and so you can go visit them? And I, uh, uh, I had to ask her to remind me who Don and Leona were. Now, they were lifelong friends of my mother and father. And they, Don was, in fact, the best man at my parents' wedding some 50 years before. And I said, oh, oh, yes, that's right. But I hadn't seen him since I was a small child. And I called up Don and I said, I'm going to be in Nogales this weekend and maybe we could get together on Saturday or something. He goes, hey, do you like to golf? And I mean, that's just the words for me. I, yeah, absolutely. I just love, I, I just love to golf. I didn't play very well today though, but <clears throat> I love to golf. And so I brought my clubs and I met with him on that Saturday morning and uh, we went out to golf. 
And as we're walking along this course, he started to ask very specific, pertinent questions about my life. And they were so specific that it was baffling me. This, how on earth does he know all this about my life? And I, got, I kept on trying to answer. He knew, he knew what school I had graduated from, what degree I had gotten, what companies I was with. He knew what I would do these days with alternative sentencing, the recovery homes, and this foundation that I'm with. He just was rattling all these stuff, asking questions and getting feedback from me on all these aspects of my life. And I, by the fourth hole, I had to stop him. I said, Don, Don, I'm confused. I'm really confused here because I haven't seen you since I've been a young boy, and yet you seem to know all these things about my life. How on earth do you know that? Because I'm kind of embarrassed that I don't know more about your life, Don. And he said, well, Carl, the reason I know this, this much about your life is, well, two things. First thing is that before your father died, I used to talk to him at least five or six times a year, and he was always talking about what was going on in your life. He was always saying how proud he was of the things that you were doing and how Alcoholics Anonymous had affected your life. And he just went, would always talk. And now that wasn't anything new. My, my father had never hid that from me once I was sober. But it was nice to hear from a longtime friend of his. That was nice. But the next thing he said floored me. He turned to me and he said, besides, every Christmas, I get the Christmas letter. Like, yes, finally I'm in there. <laughs> I found a life in Alcoholics Anonymous that, was, that, that I didn't even know was available for a man like me. I had no idea that life could be this way. I had no idea that I could love people and be loved. I had no idea that I could find meaning and purpose to life. The only time I had ever felt meaning and purpose before Alcoholics Anonymous was somewhere between the 8th and 10th drink. That's when I thought I felt meaning and purpose. But I found that in Alcoholics Anonymous. And it, I seemed to be drawn to Alcoholics Anonymous instinctively. Just instinctively. And I, know, I, I believe I know what that is. Is that all human beings are naturally, when they are in a position to be available to it, are naturally drawn to God. And as an alcoholic, I seem to experience God more powerfully in Alcoholics Anonymous than I do anywhere else. Oh, I experience God all over in, in all sorts of different aspects of life, but I seem to experience God the most powerfully and profoundly in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I, I, one example, just walking down the hallway on the way here, ran across Matt or Red. You guys from Las Vegas know who he is. Fundamentally changed human being. Could barely recognize him. My girlfriend Maria was with me, and she almost cried. Because we saw him when he had about three days. We were up talking to the specific group, and, uh, and he was there shaking in that Tuesday. And, I mean, he had that, well, I don't, you guys know. And the man standing in the hallway talking to us and happy to see us, fundamentally different human being. Just like in, in Bill's story, when Bill describes the way Ebby was, that his roots grasped a different soil. And that, you, you see that in Alcoholics Anonymous all the time. And so that's why I experience God more profoundly than anywhere else here in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm not going to leave. I am really not going to leave. I hope you don't either. God bless.